0: Our sermon today will be taken from Ruth chapter 2. This is the word of God. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she sat and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping. of your servants. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers, and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied, and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean among among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. So she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, The man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, Besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Thus says the Lord.
1: Thanks, Emily. That was a long text, so thank you for reading all that out for us. All right, guys, today we're going to continue in the book of Ruth, and today we're on chapter two. We'll continue to finish the whole book of Ruth. It's four chapters, so I think it's going to take another two Sundays for us to finish if we do one chapter a week. All right, so remember, I mentioned last week in my sermon of chapter one, the book of Ruth is meant to be read in one sitting. It's four chapters, and you can't really understand what Each chapter is trying to say, unless you connect it to the whole book, and unless you connect the whole book to the whole Bible. So first, right now, let's talk about how this book connects with the whole Bible. Okay, I'm going to teach a lot in the introduction here because it takes a lot for us to get the context, but stick with me. Remember, the Bible is a story of God's redemption, God's redemptive story, how he's committed himself to redeeming and saving his people. And I remember the book of Ruth, I made a diagram here, is the eighth book in the Old Testament. I didn't write Genesis because we didn't talk about Genesis last time. But the book of Ruth is is the eighth book. And before that, you have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And what's all that about? Well, Exodus to Deuteronomy really is about God freeing his people, saving his people. You see, redemptive story. Out of the slavery of Egypt into the promised land of Canaan. Right? That's God's redemptive story. And then Moses died, Joshua took over. Finally, Joshua entered into the promised land. They're finally there. He won his battle, of victory. And then what happened? Joshua died. In the book of Joshua, uh, sorry, in the book of Judges, uh, we see Israel in a time of turmoil. They were leaderless, they were kingless. They had nobody to guide and rule over them. So you see all these wars going on, all these sinful things happening. And then at the end of the the book of Judges, Judges chapter 21, verse 25, this is what it says. The very end of the book. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In this unresolved tension of God's redemptive story, the end of the seventh book, the book of Judges, we enter into the book of Ruth, the eighth book. And the book of Ruth, therefore, is meant to answer the question... How is God going to save his people and provide a king for them? How is God going to solve this tension that's unresolved at the end of Judges? That's what Ruth is all about. So, last week, chapter 1, let me just go through this really briefly. Stick with me. Last week, chapter 1, we talked about the book starting with tragedy. There's uh, uh, characters or people named Naomi, Elimelech, and their two sons. This family of four had to leave Bethlehem because there's a famine Where do they go? They go to Moab. Their sons married two Moabite women. And then the husband died and the two sons died. So Naomi, the mom, was left with her two daughter-in-laws. Then they heard that the famine ended. So Naomi went back to Bethlehem, but the two daughter-in-laws decided they wanted to make sure she was okay and followed her to Bethlehem. One of them, Orpah, left after Naomi told her to stay. No, stay behind. I'm good. Don't worry about me. Orpah said, okay. She left. But Ruth stayed all the way despite of the risks. She gave up a lot of things by going with Naomi. She gave up the possibility of meeting another husband in Moab, her hometown. She gave up living in a place where she has less rights because she's a foreigner there in Israel. You see, and one might ask, how does such a tragedy we see in chapter 1 solve the tension we see at the end of Judges? And that's why Ruth is meant to be read in one sitting. So let's skip now, still with me? Let's skip now all the way to the end of Ruth chapter 4 where we see Ruth in the middle of this tragedy, led by this tragedy, finding a husband in Bethlehem. His name is Boaz, the guy that we just read about in chapter 2. He, they first met here in chapter 2. And if you skip to the end of the book, you see that Ruth marries Boaz. Chapter 4, verse 17. They had a son, and this is very significant, because it answers the unresolved tension we just read in Judges. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Why is this important? Who did David later become? The king of Israel. You see, the unresolved tension at the end of the book of Judges, who is going to lead Israel? We have no king. Nobody's going to save and guide and protect us, was answered at the end of the book of Ruth by saying, David will, who came out of the line of Ruth and Boaz. So now, let me give a spoiler. Last week, we also talked about how God's end goal for redemptive history does not find its final solution in David. David is not the ultimate savior and king of God's people. Who was? Who was the one who came from the line of David that later became the savior and king for God's people? Jesus was. Look at how Jesus was described. You open the New Testament, the first chapter of the first book, the first verse says this, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Let's read another one, just to be sure that the, this God's salvation history is not meant to end at David, but in Christ. Luke 1, 30 to 33. This is when Jesus was born. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom there will be no end. He is the answer to the unresolved tension at the end of Judges, you see. He is the Savior and King that will guide and protect God's people. The significance of the story of Ruth and Boaz is not ultimately that they're the ancestors of David, but they became the ancestors of Jesus Christ. The true Savior and King of God's people, the true solution for the unresolved tension at the end of Judges. And now, under this context of redemptive history, let's begin our study of Ruth chapter 2. Three points one, the sovereign, fair, and gracious God of the Old Testament, two, the full display of who He is in the New Testament. Three, how followers of this biblical God live today. The sovereign, fair, and gracious God of the Old Testament, the full display of who he is in the New Testament, how followers of this biblical God live today. Let's pray, and then we'll begin. Father, we pray that you have grace as we handle your revealed word to us. We do so with reverence and with awe, and we approach it with the understanding that this is not just an academic book to study, but it's a love letter you have given for your people that we may see just how much you are radically in love with us. And now in that, I pray, you allow us to see the cross where your love was fully displayed. Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Point number one the sovereign, fair, and gracious God of the Old Testament. So let's begin in our passage. In verse 1, the author introduces here a new character into the story, a guy named Boaz. Boaz was called a worthy man. Worthy just means capable, resourced man. Verse 1 also mentions that he was of the same clan of Elimelech. Remember, Elimelech was Naomi's husband that died in chapter 1, Ruth's deceased father-in-law that died in chapter 1, Boaz was in the same clan of Elimelech. To be in the same clan just means you're in a tighter knit group family or group of people within the larger tribe. There's tribes and then there's clans. Elimelech was in the same clan as Boaz, this guy that we see in verse 1. Then in verse 2, you see Ruth asking Naomi permission to glean and gather food for Naomi, which was the whole point of Ruth leaving Moab in the first place, right, to take care of Naomi and make sure that she is blessed in her old age. Gleaning, we just need to know this uh, uh, as we continue, gleaning was a form of taking leftover grain that fell on the, on the ground. So farmers or reapers at the time would, would walk along during harvest time and they would, you know, they would, with a sickle, cut ears of grain, But every now and then there are certain ears of grain that would fall or just pieces of grain that would fall, and gleaners would be people behind them picking them up and storing it for themselves. Gleaners were allowed to take what was fallen on the ground, and the gleaning law was instituted and protected by Yahweh himself. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 9 to 10, chapter 23, verse 22, and Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19, God said, you let sojourners and widows glean. Protected and instituted by God. So Ruth set out to glean in verse 3. It says that she gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. I want to point out one thing here, it's significant. It's very interesting. In verse 3, the term the author used, and she just happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, at first glance, it might seem like the author is trying to say, it just so happened, just by chance, not by divine will, that uh, Ruth ended up in Boaz's field. But actually, that's not at all the intent of the author. It's actually the opposite of it. How do we know that? Well, first of all, throughout the Old Testament, the divine, invisible hand of God has always been in play, even when it doesn't seem like it is. And even in Ruth chapter 1, you see that he was the one who caused the famine. He was the one who came down and relieved his people from the famine. He was sovereign all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout Ruth chapter 1. But also, notice the redundant information that the author gives in verse 3. And she just so happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Now, the author already told us that Boaz belonged to the clan of Elimelech in verse 1, didn't he? Why did he feel the need to tell us again in verse 3? It seems redundant. It seems unnecessary. It seems like it's repetitive information. Well, the author does this intentionally to emphasize, hey guys, there's a connection here. Elimelech, Ruth's deceased father-in-law, just so happened to be in the same clan as Boaz, who just so happened to own the field that Ruth just so happened to came to. And then in verse 4, it's almost sarcastic. You see the author say, And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. The word behold sounds kind of archaic and old to us right now. But back then, the author meant it more something like this. Surprise, surprise. Boaz came. The person that just so happens to be in the same clan as Ruth's deceased father-in-law, who just so happened to own the land that Ruth just so happened to stroll into, and he came, uh, it just so happened that he came when Ruth was there. (laughs) This is sarcastic undertones throughout the whole verse. So from the first four verses, you see that God is not a God who is out of touch with his creation. He didn't just create creation, then leave it to be on its own. He's meticulously involved in every part of it, although his divine hand might not seem to be at work. Matthew chapter 10, not even a sparrow can fall without God allowing it. He knows every number in our hairs. So we see God is a sovereign God. Then after verse 6 to 7, where Boaz uh, finally sees Naomi and asks who is this woman because he probably didn't recognize her. He, she was not part of his normal people who would glean or one of his employees. Uh, and then he asks uh, one of his employees who is this woman and then verses 8 to 9 um, uh, or verses uh, 7 I think the, uh, the employee told Boaz who Naomi was and then verses 8 to 9 Boaz not only allowed Ruth to glean from the field but he went above and beyond. If you read it, he said, I've charged my young man to not attack you. I'm not only letting you glean, I'm protecting you. And then he also gave her a drink from water, from his water. Not only am I allowing you to glean and, and, and stay faithful to God's commandments to glean, but I'm going to go above and beyond. And this act of kindness, in verse 10, caused Naomi to what? Fall on the ground. She bowed down and she thanked Boaz, which showed a lot of humility. For a pride person rarely says thank you. She then asked the question, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Notice here the other two parts of God's character that I said in this verse. Notice Boaz's answer it reveals to us God is not only sovereign, but he is also fair and gracious. Okay, first, let's see God's fairness, God's justice. So verse 11, Boaz answers Naomi. In verse 10, Naomi asks, why are you being so nice to me? And verse 11, this is his answer. All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Pretty much saying, I, I'm now letting you take and glean from my grains although it would cause me some sort of financial disadvantage, but I will bless you although it's causing me disadvantage because that's what you did for your mother-in-law. Your husbands are dead. You no longer are by law required to protect Naomi in the way you do. But yet you risked leaving your home country. You came to us and at your own expense, you blessed her. And then verse 12, he says, the Lord, what? Repay you for what you have done. And full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Repay you. Yahweh, the God of the Bible, is a fair God, is a just God. He will repay us for our deeds. But now some might say, well, of course Boaz allowed her to glean. He was his hands were tied behind his back. He had to, right? Yahweh instituted this law back in Leviticus and all those other verses he mentioned. So he kind of had to. He had no option, right? But remember, this law was instituted by Yahweh primarily as a law within Israel, Israel, for Israelites. Remember, a part of Ruth's confusion in verse 10, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me, since I am a Foreigner. Ruth was a Moabite. And there's a lot of questions whether or not this gleaning law applies to her. I think that's why Ruth was continually mentioned by the author as the Moabite. In verse 2, Ruth the Moabite. In verse 6, the young Moabite woman from the country of Moab. In verse 21, Ruth the Moabite. Why does the author keep reminding us that she's a Moabite? She's a Moabite. She's a Moabite. Hey, remember, she's not an Israelite. She does not have as much rights as Israelites here do. Yet despite this, not only did Boaz allow Ruth the Moabite to enjoy the benefits Yahweh has instituted, primarily for Israelites, but Boaz went above and beyond. Verse 9, with the water. Then you continue in our story, verse 14. She had her join his staff during mealtime. He gave her so much food, Ruth had left over. Keep that in mind. We're going to touch back on that later. Ruth has so much food left over, she kept it in her pockets or somewhere. And because of Boaz's kindness, which went above and beyond the required gleaning law, verse 17 says, Ruth took home an epah of barley. An epa is equal to half months' worth of work in one day. This is bizarre. Boaz gave Ruth beyond what the gleaning law required. See, in this chapter, you see three characteristics of God. In verses 1 to 4, you see he is sovereign He led Ruth to just happen to come to Boaz's field, who just happened to be all that. He's sovereign. He's in control. Verses 11 to 12, I will repay you for what you have done to your mother-in-law. He's just. He's fair. But three, he's also gracious. Although the law most likely was not binding to a Moabite, still imparted the blessing upon Ruth, who was not only required by law, uh, but also went above and beyond. Sovereign, fair, and just, gracious. Now, why is this important for you and I? Why is this theology of who God is in Ruth chapter 2 important? It's unbelievably important. One, because, I mean, the simple fact of knowing who God is is reason enough for it to be important. But also, there's an incredible implication to all this, especially in regards to redemptive history, the story of how God saves and redeems his people, as said in the introduction, is how Ruth is all about. So let's move to point number two. The full display of who he is in the New Testament. Now remember in the introduction I said the point of the book of Ruth is God fulfilling his redemptive history, right? Solving the unresolved tension at the end of the, ju- end of the book of Judges. Who's going to save us? Who's going to be our king? And, and that led to David, and that led to Jesus, Right, who does become our savior and our king. But why? Why did God have to go to Jesus? Why did redemptive history have to happen in such a way that brought about the birth and the death of Jesus on the cross? Friends, it has everything to do with the characters of God we see here in Ruth chapter 2. Jesus was necessary because God is sovereign, fair, and gracious. It's a bit unclear right now, but stick with me. Think, think about it. What did Jesus Christ come to do? What was the purpose of his birth? Is to come and die on the cross and forgive us of our sins by paying for the full consequences of our sins on the cross by his own blood. Right? 1 Peter 2.24 He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Ephesians one Ephesians 1.7 in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. But why? Why did it have to happen in this way? Why through Christ? Why through the cross? Because God is a sovereign, just, fair, and gracious God. Let me, okay, let me explain it this way. Let me ask us this question. What if the same fair and just God we see in Ruth chapter 2 treated us with the same justice he showed here through the words of Boaz. What if he came to us today and he asked you this question? He, He made this statement to you. I will repay you for your deeds. Think about our lives. Think about every hidden deed, every malicious thought no one knows about, every concealed desire you're embarrassed to admit you ever had, every bad thing you did, every good thing you should have done but failed to do, every neglect of his law, and even when you succeed to obey his law, he knows every sense of pride and subtle superiority we might feel. What if this fair God, who knows every hidden, concealed thing in the history of your life, said these same words to you? I will repay you for what you've done. Would we cheer with proud joy or shuttle in humble fear? I hope it's the second. Because despite of what we think about ourselves, the scripture is clear. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Remember the first part of our assurance of pardon, the wages of sin is death. What if this same God said these words to you, I will repay you for what you have done? Now, friends, do you see the dilemma that the God in Ruth chapter 2 might be facing here? Remember, he's not only fair and just, he's also gracious. How can a fair God be gracious at the same time? Because if he's fair, then he must deal with all of our sin, and he cannot leave it unpunished, right? Or else he'd be unfair. If he's fair, he must deal with it. He must punish it. But then if he punishes all of it, he won't be gracious. You see the dilemma he's in? What's the solution? How do we resolve this tension? How can God punish sin and be just and be fair, yet at the same time forgive sinners? How can the, Ruth in, how can the God in Ruth chapter 2 be fair and gracious at the same time? Friends, the cross. Think about it. What happened on the cross? The God we see here in Ruth chapter 2 did not have to choose between being fair or gracious. He was both at the same time. How? He was gracious and he forgave us of our sin. Yet at the same time, justice was not betrayed. Why? Because it was still paid. By who? By him. 1 Peter 2.24, by his wounds you have been healed. You see, the only way God can truly be the God we see here in Ruth chapter 2, who is fully gracious and fully just at the same time, is through the cross. The only way he can be fully just without sacrificing his graciousness, we're still forgiven, yet be fully gracious without sacrificing his justice, The cost was still paid by him was on the cross. You see, so we see here that the same fair and gracious God in Ruth chapter 2, what did he do? He sovereignly orchestrated the meeting of Ruth and Boaz through whom God in flesh, John chapter 1 says, Jesus Christ was born, who embraced the cross that was meant for us, fulfilling his justice by paying for our sins. Yet at the same time, displaying his grace and forgiving us through it. Hence, the same God in Ruth chapter two, who is just and fair at the same time, displaying his character of sovereignty, justice, and grace in the brightest way possible when he died on that cross for you. That's why redemptive history had to go in the way that it did, through Christ, through the cross. Now, I'm going to talk about something else in our passage, and then I'm going to tie it all up at the end. Okay? So first we see in Ruth chapter 2 a God who is sovereign, just, and gracious. Sovereign, fair, and gracious. The only way God can be these three things is through the cross. Without the cross, he's either unjust or ungracious. He's have to give up one of them. Okay, so now number three, point number three. How followers of this biblical God live today. I want to point out something from the text that may seem contradicting to us today. Um, a question I hear a lot. People come up to me and ask me, okay, you believe God is sovereign. If God is sovereign, he's in control of all things. He's able to accomplish all of his purposes like we see here today, right? The, the book in Ruth chapter 2. He, he went through redemptive history in such a way that accomplishes his purposes of redemptive history, which is the cross. If that's true then why do I need to do anything? Why shouldn't I just live my life and let God do His thing, and I just do my thing? We often feel the need to choose between God's sovereignty and human responsibility. However, the book of Ruth, in this chapter, nor does the Bible as a whole, feel the need to pin one against the other. Okay. Let's see it through this chapter. Although the author seems to put an emphasis in God's sovereignty, remember he'd bring about uh, Ruth and Boaz together and, and all this kind of stuff, and it didn't just happen, but God's divine hand was there, he also, the author does also emphasize the importance of Boaz's obedience in moving God's redemptive story forward. It's just as important. Just think about it. If Boaz didn't obey God's gleaning laws, God's instituted laws in the Old Testament, his relationship with Ruth would not have developed the way it did. See, Boaz's obedience to God's laws moved the story forward as well. If he wasn't the kind man who portrayed God's grace and blessed Ruth in such a way that was beyond the requirements of the gleaning law, his relationship with Ruth would not have developed in such a way. You see, Boaz's responsibility of obeying God and his law was an absolutely important piece of the story, not optional. But then also, take a look at Ruth. She was also obedient to God. She also lived with integrity. Look at verses 18 to 19. And she took it up, the the half month's worth of grain, and went to the city. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. Remember the, the food that Ruth had left over from lunch? She brought it back to Naomi and gave it to Naomi. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. In verse 19, Naomi went into praise of this man, Boaz, and said, blessed be him. And then you see later, go back to him. Go back and work with Boaz again. Why was Naomi so confident in encouraging Ruth to go back to work for Boaz, which, by the way, also developed their relationship? One... Well, Naomi's responsibility and integrity in working hard. She said, I will selflessly give my life to provide for you, Naomi. So Ruth worked all the way from uh, morning till afternoon, I think verse, verse 7 says. And she brought back all this grain. And Naomi was like, wow, the guy you work for must be in your favor. Go back to him. But not only did we see Naomi encourage Ruth to go back to Boaz based on how much food she brought back, But also, look at verse 18 again. She, Ruth, also brought out and gave her, Naomi, what food she had left over after being satisfied. Remember in verse 14, when I said Boaz went above and beyond the gleaning laws and he gave Naomi cooked grain, roasted grain, and Naomi had much left over and she brought that home with her. She had half a month's of grain. What's the big deal if she gave Naomi this leftover cooked grain? It's no big deal. She'd eat it for herself. Why, why does she do that? Because she had integrity. I've had enough. I'm going to give what I have left to Naomi, although I have this load of grain behind me. She had integrity. She worked hard. Her obedience to God, her selflessness for Naomi, encouraged Naomi to then Tell Ruth to go back to Boaz. Who did you work for? Hmm. Not only did you get all this grain, but you brought back cooked food as well. So he didn't only let you do, let you glean, but invited you for lunch too? Hmm. Go back to him. <laughs> work for him again. But if Ruth wasn't faithful in giving Naomi that, if Ruth wasn't faithful in working hard as she can, I don't know if Naomi would have propelled her to go back to Boaz as much as she did, which then played a part of the story of developing Boaz and Ruth's relationship. See, God is sovereign, yes, but the author does not excuse human responsibility. Our obedience to God's law, our integrity, our selflessness also propels God's redemptive story forward. Here, made Ruth and Boaz continue in their relationship which brought about the birth of David, which brought about the birth of Jesus. Don't pin God's sovereignty and human responsibility together. What the author is saying here, never use the excuse of God being sovereign to justify your disobedience to his commands. We must stop justifying our disobedience to his commands under the banner of his sovereignty, which is so easy for us Reformed Christians to do. But instead, do what? Use everything that we are, everything that we have, to portray to the world God's justice and God's mercy, i.e. his gospel, his cross, where both God's justice and mercy meets. When Boaz obeyed God's law of gleaning, when he allowed Ruth to glean in his field, you know what Boaz is saying? Boaz is ultimately saying, This field is not mine. I don't get to set the rules for it. I don't decide who gets what from it. It's God's field. He gets to set the laws. If he says sojourners and widows are allowed to glean from it, then guess what? Sojourners and widows are allowed to glean from it. But it might decrease your profit, Boaz. I don't know what to tell you. It's not my field. It's his. He sets the law, not me. Is that how we view our companies? Is that how we view our boyfriends and girlfriends? Is that how we view our spouse and our kids? Our free time? Our bank accounts? You set the rules. It's not mine. But you might disadvantage from it. I don't know what to tell you. It's not mine. (laughs) It's God's. Let me me tie all this back together. I'm not saying this is easy to do. It's unbelievably hard to live in such a way in what all we have, money, businesses, families, relationships, to view all of that as God's possession and to live like Boaz and Ruth and use whatever land we have to display his sovereign justice and mercy, i.e. his cross, to the world instead of a tool for personal self Advancement is gut wrenchingly hard. It is. Why is it hard? Because we live in a broken world, don't we? Sin and brokenness isn't only in us, but as we confess in our confession of sin, is something out there. And our passage hints on it too. When we're living in a broken world, what it does is it makes future, uncertain, future uncertainties apparent. And it's hard to give to God what we have for him to control when we feel like we lack future security because we live in a broken world. Look at verse 21. The author introduces Ruth again at the end of this whole story as the Moabite. Why? To remind us, yeah, okay, things might be looking like they're on the up and up for Ruth. But uncertainty and danger still lurks. And Remember, she's still a foreigner here. Her rights may not be respected by many people. Then verse 22, Naomi told Ruth, While you glean, stick to Boaz's, specifically, female employees, not male. Why? Because of the fear of being assaulted. Danger still lurks. At the end of verse 23, the author ending the story with, again, a bit of attention, it was the end of the wheat harvest. The harvest has ended. Okay, what now? Will there be enough food to carry on to next harvest? Will there be another famine next year? I don't know. Will Boaz decide to show Ruth the same generosity he showed next harvest as he did this harvest? I don't know. The is intentionally building tension and there's still uncertainty. There's still anxiety. There's still lack of control lurking closely in every corner. <coughs> And you know what uncertainty and anxiety and lack of self-control does? It makes us want to play God. It makes us want to decide for ourselves how to use our resources, not as a way to advance his gospel, his justice and his grace, but ultimately as a resource for my own self-protection. We are tempted then to say, it's okay to cheat here and there. It's okay to lack integrity here and there. I can lack integrity in my business dealings and sacrifice portraying God's justice and mercy through my company to ensure my future financial security because we live in an uncertain world. I need something for a rainy day. I can lack of holiness in my dating life. Um, It's it's okay. I'm going to give myself in this way to my girlfriend or to my boyfriend, though it's disobedient to God so that I can control and ensure that he or she will stay and not reject me in the future. It's a form of taking back control. It's a form of saying, I want to self-protect myself and make sure I'm protected from all these uncertainties that is in a broken world. And in light of this fear, I'll I'll, I'll tie it all together here with with God's character we saw in chapter 1, with the gospel we saw in chapter 2, with, with, with the call we have to obey God and use our resources to portray His cross instead of our own personal agendas. I'll connect it all here with two encouragements for those who have received Christ and a word for those who are still exploring Christianity. Okay? Two encouragements. First, two encouragements for those who have received Christ as Lord and Savior. Back to the three characters of God. One, remember, God is sovereign even when life is scary. Two, remember, God is merciful and just even when we fail. Okay, one, remember, God is sovereign. If you have received Christ, remember, God is sovereign even when life is scary. Now, you've seen in this text, even in the midst of random just happens, God's divine hand was intertwined within it all. He's still there. He's still in control. When the dark night cloud hides the moon, it doesn't mean that it's left you. It's still there. So when life gets scary, he has not left you. He's still sovereign, and although we might not see the obvious implications of his divine hand at work, it's working. But two, what if we do fail? What if we fail to use our resources and obey God and fail to use our time and our money and whatever we have to portray God's justice and God's mercy to the world, to portray the cross, the gospel to the world, What if the anxieties of this uncertain world chokes us and causes us to continually treat what we own as a tool for personal advancement instead of a tool that propels God's salvation message forward? What if we fail? Remember, he's merciful and he's just. Friends, he's merciful. What a cliche answer, Tazar. He's merciful If you just knew how much I failed, you would not dare to call me to claim God's mercy. Okay, then claim his justice. What do I mean? How does God's justice give those who are in Christ an assurance of salvation when we fail? Friends, remember what Christ did on the cross? He paid for the full sum of your sins. Now think about it. If God demands payment from you in the future for sins that has already been paid for, what would that make him? That would make him unjust. You know where your assurance of salvation lies? Not only in the fact that God is gracious, but that he is just. And he will not demand payment from you because he has paid for it fully on the cross. You have a hard time hanging on to His mercy to believe that you're saved. if you receive Christ, hang on to his justice. Christian, this is what's so mind-blowing about the gospel, about the cross where God's mercy and justice meets, He loves you so much that he's committed himself to you fully, both in His mercy and in his justice. And if you receive Christ as Lord and Savior, and you have a hard time believing in his mercy, then hold on to his justice. Hold on to the fact that he is an utterly fair God, and he will never demand payment from you anymore, because he has fully paid for it on the cross. He loves you so much. He's committed himself to you fully, fully, on that cross where both his mercy and justice meets to assure you that you will be his forever, even when life gets scary, even when you fail. Now, a word for those still exploring Christianity, still exploring the gospel. If you're still exploring the gospel, you're studying the Bible, you're learning what Jesus Christ did on the cross to die for your sins. It's it's, um, it's easy to view the cross or the gospel as one option to get to God. So we have this picture that there's God, but then there's like many options to get to him, and the cross is like one of those options. It's, it's easy to think that. But through Ruth chapter 2, we see that the cross wasn't just one way offered by God of how to get to him. The cross was a necessary result of who God is. Remember, because he is fully just and because he is fully gracious, the cross must happen or else he's not fully just or fully gracious at the same time. So if that is true, if the cross is not just an option of how to get to God, if the cross is a necessary result of who God is, to reject the cross is not just rejecting one of the ways to get to God, you see, to reject the cross, therefore, is actually rejecting the God that the Bible presents, who is fully just and fully fair. You see, you see what I'm saying? When you say another cross, you're saying God is either not fully just or not fully gracious. And really, to live in a world where we don't have a God who is fully just, who is fully fair, meaning that many wrongdoings or injustices in the world out there might not be dealt with, that's to live in a scary world. And you really can't find true peace living in a world with such a God. And to have a God who is not fully gracious would lead to either hopelessness or pride. Because a sinful person who feels like they're more dirty than other people, feel like they can never get it right, they'll feel hopeless. Because there's no guarantee of future hope of grace. And if there's no grace, the person who's righteous, who feels like they're better or they're more religious or more moral than other people, will end up feeling prideful. Because your salvation was not a result of his grace, it was a result of your own morality. It's a result of your own religiosity. It's a result of your own obedience. You see, if you don't have a God that's fully gracious, you'll end up being hopeless or prideful. If you don't have a God who's fully just... It's a really scary world that you live in that some injustices might not be dealt with. You can't really have peace. The only way to truly find peace in this unjust world and to have hope of eternal salvation, no matter how sinful your past is, no matter how often you fail, yet without feeling prideful about it, in other words, the only way to be peaceful, hopeful, and humble all at the same time, is only if you have a God who is fully just and gracious at the same time. And if you have a God who is fully just and gracious at the same time, it necessarily leads to the event of the cross. So, let's summarize. One, we see in Ruth chapter 2, God is a sovereign, fair, and gracious God. Two, we see that the cross... Um, is the only way that God can truly remain who he is as fully just and fully gracious at the same time. Because the cross, which, by the way, was brought about by God's sovereignty in uniting Ruth and Boaz together, though it may seem like it just happened, was actually a sovereign result of who he is. Three, although God is sovereign, the author of Ruth does not feel the need to pin his sovereignty against human responsibility For the sovereign God is pleased to use the faithfulness of his servants to move his redemptive story forward. So now we're called to obey him and use all of who we are and all of that we have as a tool to portray his justice and mercy, i.e. the cross to the world, instead of to use them as our own personal advancements. So remember, your company, your relationships, your time, your spouse, your money, your children... Or perhaps you literally own a farm like Boaz does. If you do, then the application is pretty clear for you. There are not things to be used for your own personal agendas. There are tools to portray the cross of Christ through by your fair and gracious dealings in them, to them, and through them. Lastly, when uncertainties of this broken world choke us and we fail to do what we are called to do that, I just, that we just said, in treating, god's, in treating what we have as gods and not as ours, to portray his justice and not our personal advancement, remember his mercy and his justice. If you've received him as Lord and Savior, he will never let you go, nor will he any longer punish you because he's merciful and because he's just. Therefore, he will never demand payment from your sins anymore because he has paid for it in full on the cross when he bled and died in your place. So now, you can live your life peacefully, hopefully, but yet at the same time humbly because you're not saved by your own works. And you can lay down your possessions for him who laid down his life for you. Behold, the God of the Old Testament fully displayed on the cross of Christ in the New Testament. And just consider for a second how much he loves you. Look at how much he wants to use you to spread this message of salvation and love even through our smallest acts of obedience that may not seem like it matters. Receive this gospel, the only way to have a relationship with the only God and live now in such a way that portrays it. Pray with me. Father, if you were not fully just and fair, you would not have to punish sin. But yet you are, and sin must be dealt with. If you are not fully gracious, then you'll just punish all of us. But yet you're gracious as well. And thank you, Father. That through redemptive history, when you died on that cross, you have displayed your graciousness in forgiving us without sacrificing your justice, because sin was still dealt with and paid for, not by us, but by your blood, in through whose wounds we are healed. Father, now let us be entranced and consumed by this gospel, by this cross, by this God who loved us and sovereignly orchestrated redemptive history for me, for us, for sinners like, like I, I cannot comprehend this, Lord. And as I look at my life, my passions, and as I look at the uncertainties of this world, I fear I cannot live up to the delight and the duty you've given me as a redeemed, saved person. But yet, Father, when we fail, we again hold on even tighter to your mercy and to your justice, that you are merciful and that you have paid it and will no longer demand me to pay for it because you are just. Let us now be propelled by this truth to live our lives and give you every second we have and every penny we own and every relationship we have, that it may be used to portray to the world like Boaz and Ruth did, your faithfulness, your selflessness, your justice, your mercy, your cross and message of salvation, instead of using it to advance our own personal agendas. What an amazing salvation Have we received it? I pray, Lord, that we do. In Jesus name me pray.